Let me cover some kind of housekeeping stuff um, before I pray and we jump into our message. And uh, one of those is that uh, we have two services coming up here in a few weeks. October 24th, we start the 11 o'clock service. And I just want to encourage you, um, if you consider this place family, um, if you call High Point Carville your home, uh, one, if I haven't met you, I would love to meet you. And I don't just say that, you know, as a common courtesy. Like, if I don't know you, I really would love to know you. Um, I can be bought. We can go out and uh, uh, treat me to lunch, do whatever. No, I'm kidding. I would love to do that for you. Um, but I would love to get to know you and your family and um, all of those things. But if you consider this place family, we would encourage you to figure out if you're not currently involved, um, how you can get involved. And we're, I'll say this multiple times today, we are not about guilting you or pressuring you or shaming you into doing something. Uh, we believe God's grace is a much better motivator than guilt. Um, so you're not going to get that from us, especially when it comes to missions. Let me just say this. We're not going to do a big moment at the end of our service and ask your family to stand up and commit to like leaving the U.S. and all those kind of things. Um, we're not going to pressure you. We trust the Holy Spirit that he will lead those who he is called to go. And uh, we're really praying that eventually, if it's this generation of folks at our church or the one that we're raising, that um, someone from this campus, a family from this campus will go and uh, go on mission and live on mission, and we will support and send and all of those kind of things, but we'll talk about that. But if you consider this place your home, we would encourage you to maybe figure out how you can get involved. Uh, one of the things that I love about uh, Paul's teaching on the Holy Spirit in 1 Corinthians 12, um, he talks about all the gifts, and then I think it's in verse 11, he says that the Holy Spirit has apportioned to each one uh, the gifts like as he wills, that it's God's will, he's given you the gifts that you have, um, and I don't have all the gifts, you don't have all the gifts. You don't have all the gifts. So theoretically, what's supposed to happen is when we as the church, not the building, not the brand, but when we as the people of God get together, this is where we experience all of the gifts. So as a church, we can't be fully us without you, that you have gifts that we are eager to experience, that God has wired you and gifted you. And if the Holy Spirit is in you, he has given you gifts that are from the Holy Spirit, and we can't be fully us without you. There are gifts that we need to experience that you have. There are people's children over in kids that need to experience how great the Holy Spirit has gifted you to, be, to interact and be and teach with children, right? Um, that we all have gifts. We can't be fully us without you, and theoretically, as far as the Christian experience, you can't experience all that you were meant to experience under God without us. And we don't say that arrogantly, we say that humbly, like that's the church, that's what it's supposed to be, where we experience the full range of the gifts because it's multiple people, generations of people, different backgrounds, different socioeconomic status, all of us get together, the Holy Spirit in us, apportioned to us different gifts as he has willed, and we all get to experience them together. When we do life with one another, when we serve one another, when we love one another, so we cannot be fully us without you getting involved. We need you to participate to serve how the Lord has gifted you to serve, um, to invest in the next generation, to, to serve in kids over on the other side. And please don't hear me pressure you to do that. But I pray that you would think about, okay, how has the Holy Spirit gifted me? And how can I use my gifts to serve this body? And if that means you just stick around until the 11 o'clock service starts and you can hold some doors for us, great. If that means you can commit to staying for another service um, and serving in kids. Let me just say this. Um, and I say this to brag on them, uh, we opened back from our little break during coronavirus um, last September. So it's been over a year. Um, and we've only had one service since we opened up, which means 
that the folks over there that are serving your kids have not been in a worship service since we opened up in over a year. So one of the gifts that you can give our body is to allow these folks to come in and worship. Um, we would greatly appreciate that. So let that, lay that before you, let the Holy Spirit do what it does, but consider how you might jump in and serve with us. Um, and then secondly, uh, we are posting the messages every week. So if you miss a week, um, you can go to highpointmemphis.com or highpointonline.com slash media and all the podcasts are there. And then we are working on when you open up your podcast app here in the next week or two, you'll be able to just search High Point Carrieville and all the podcasts will be there as well. But they're all on the web. I know a few of you have asked, so that's where they are. But that's the housekeeping stuff. Let's pray together and jump into our message. Lord, we thank you for your word. Um, God, we are grateful for um, what we've already experienced and the truth that we've sung. Um, but God, we're excited to see um, your heart for the nations. Um, God, that there will be a day uh, when people from every tribe, tongue, and nation uh, will bow before you in worship for all eternity. Um, God, that has been your plan from the beginning. Um, help us to see that and help us to see how we might get involved this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, a few things as we jump into this. Uh, one of those is that this morning we are not landing in one particular passage. We're going to kind of do a sweep over lots of different passages. So I would encourage you, um, you can try to keep up and take notes, and we highly encourage all of those things, but we're going to be kind of doing a flyover in Scripture. So if you want to not do that today and just kind of follow along mentally and take it all in, you can. And if you email me, I'd be happy to send you the notes and all of the Scriptures, all right? So you can just email me if you want, parker.richardson at highpointmemphis.com. I'd be glad to send those over to you. And then you've got all the notes, and you didn't have to write a single thing. So you can do that anytime. Um, if there's a message that you want to see, um, scripture or anything like that, please reach out. I'd be happy to share those with you. Um, I was meeting this week with our Go, our missions ministry leader. Her name's Miss Renee Armstrong, and she goes to this campus. She's typically here, um, but because there's a guest speaker at East Memphis and those kind of things, she's over there. But I was asking her, okay, what's the heartbeat behind the series? What do you, what do you want to accomplish in this series? And she said, I don't want to guilt anybody. I don't want to shame anybody. I want to teach what the scriptures say about living on mission. And then I want to trust the Holy Spirit to send those he will send and call those who he will call. And that's what we're going to do this morning. So you can rest assured uh, there's not going to be this you know, left hook at the end to make you feel really bad to get involved. Um, that works for like one Sunday, right? You might do something next week and then it doesn't last. Uh, we want God's grace to be a motivator in all of this, in God's truth and God's word. Um, so that's what we're going to do. We're going to look at God's word. And uh, my hope is that as we talk about these different things this morning, um, I've got multiple verses for each point uh, because I think that's just wise. Um, it's bad hermeneutics, and hermeneutics is just a fancy term for Bible interpretation. It is bad hermeneutics to develop a theology about something based on one verse or like one word within one verse. Right? We want to know what the whole counsel of God's word says about a particular issue, um, which is why I would encourage you um, to read the Bible in community. If you do not have a community where you are opening the Bible with one another, if you're not in a small group at our church or if you don't have another community, um, this is good hermeneutics to sit around other believers with Bibles open and allow them um, as the Holy Spirit puts different scriptures on their hearts to speak those out so that um, it guards us from error. Right? 
When we're, I read this verse and here's what I'm thinking and someone else can say, yeah, that's great, but here's what this verse says, right? And it's just, it's good for us to get the full range and the full counsel of God's word on particular issues and topics, especially when we're developing a theology around something. So that's my hope this morning as we talk about missions, um, that we would do that. And uh, let me just say this. Um, I don't know if I should lead with this story, but I'm going to. Um, Have any of you heard of Jim Elliott? in the room, um, famous, yeah, famous missionary believer. If you aren't familiar with the story of Jim Elliott, Jim Elliott and his wife um, with four of their couple friends decided back in the 1950s, um, in 1951, they left their homes and went to Ecuador and they were determined. They um, saw in the scriptures God's heart for the nations and how God sends us, God's means to reach the nations that don't know Jesus, that are dying every day without hearing this gospel message and spending forever separated from God forever. Um, They caught this burden and took off, said, we're going to Ecuador, we're gonna labor, we're gonna meet these people, we're gonna do all that we can to invest in sharing the gospel with these people. So they go in 1951 and they spend about four or five years just learning the language. Um, They were learning basic um, greetings and those kind of things. They had a plane, this little yellow plane. They would fly over the remote villages. Um, They were particularly focused on the Waurani tribe in Ecuador. And they start flying over this village, um, this tribe, and they start dropping care packages on uh, this tribe with their rope hanging from their plane. They're just dropping gifts and those kind of things and yelling out greetings about God and how much they love them and those kind of things. Um, And they do that for multiple years. And they're kind of stationed and they live outside of town. And one day they finally say, you know what? We're going to land and we're going to try to interact with these people. And Jim Elliott and his four buddies end up landing within kind of the outskirts of this tribe, um, hostile tribe, and thought that just after years of greeting them and sending them gifts that they would be okay. And long story short, they end up dying there right there on the shore um, that day giving their lives um, to the cause of missions. And around mid-1950s, Life Magazine starts writing these articles saying, isn't it a shame um, that these believers are getting fired up for the gospel and they're going to these places in remote parts of the world and they're dying instantly? Um, They're not getting to share the gospel. They're not getting to invest, that they're going and they're dying. And Elizabeth Elliot, Jim Elliot's wife, writes a response to Life magazine. And she quotes Jim Elliott's journal. And his, the quote is, he, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. And she quotes the heart of her husband and his sold out mission for the glory of God that my husband, no, it's not a shame. And my husband was not a fool because he gave what he could not keep, earthly possessions, his life, all of those things to gain something that he could not lose. And the story, what happened, was Elizabeth Elliot and some of the other wives decided to go back to Ecuador. And by the glory of God, the entire tribe, for the most part, came to know Jesus Christ. When they heard the story about how their husbands sacrificed their lives so that they could hear the good news of the gospel, they all repented of their sin and placed their faith in Jesus Christ. And Jim Elliot, although he did not preach a single sermon to the Waurani tribe, um, he gave his life for the cause of missions. And because of that, generations 
of people in this tribe will spend forever in heaven with Christ and the saints uh, because of his sacrifice. And Jim Elliott became a catalyst for the modern missions movement. Um, If you are a missionary, you know the story of Jim Elliott. And it was not a waste. So what goes on in someone's brain to do that? That's what we're trying to capture this morning. As we look at God's word, as we look at his plan for the nations, his heart for the nations, um, what stirs up in us to cause people to do that? And if you're teaching a mission sermon, leading with a story about a family dying probably isn't the best move, um, but I'm trusting the Holy Spirit's work in that as we dive into this. And here's what I want you to know as we start, that the goal of life is the glory of God and the worship of God. That's the goal of creation. That's the goal of our lives. That's the goal of my life. That's the goal of your life is the glory of God. That you are made for the glory of God. You are made to know God. You are made to worship him. That everything exists for the glory of God. Romans 1, that the heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim his handiwork, right? That all of life exists for God's glory. Don't take my word for it. Let me show you. Um, This is in Isaiah 46. It says this. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things not yet done, saying my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. That our God is like no other. And whatever he decrees, whatever he purposes, it will happen. It will. Nothing can stop what God has set in motion. Nothing can stop what God has decreed before the foundation of the world. He is God. He is separate from us. He is holy. He is set apart. He's not a created being like we are. He created us. And what he sets in motion will come to pass. And this is what he has said. Isaiah 43, it says this, I will say to the north, give up, and to the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the end of the earth, everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. That you and I were created for the glory of God. That's why we exist, to glorify God. That's why the world exists, to give God glory. And you might be sitting there thinking, okay, does that mean God was lacking something? Did God create us because he needed to feel something or he was lacking glory? No. Look at Acts 17. I told you, we're gonna move fast this morning, so stay with me. This is what it says in Acts 17. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands. We don't serve him. He doesn't need us. Right? As though we don't serve him as though he needed anything. Since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind, we'll see that in just a second, to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. We don't serve God because he's lacking in something or because he's deficient in something and he created us so that we would make up for what he's deficient in. No. We do serve God, but it is because of his great mercy towards us, because of the gospel, because of what he's done for us, that he chose to make us, we rebelled from him, and he saved us, he redeemed us, he pursued us, he purchased us by the blood of his son on the cross, that he took the punishment for our sin so that we could go free. That's why we serve him. It's not because God is deficient in something and he needs to feel something by creating us. Do you see that? That's really important. 
Ephesians 1 says this, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him, in love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, here's the purpose, to the praise of his glorious grace. We were saved for the glory of God. God redeemed us for his own glory to show his majesty and his beauty and his compassion and his mercy and his grace. That's why we are saved. And he'll go on to say in verse 12, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be what? To the praise of his glory. That everything exists for the glory of God. And the response might be, okay, does that make God an egomaniac, right? Like if everything exists for the glory of God, like is God egotistical? Like is that wrong for God to, to create us for his own glory and our lives are supposed to be for his own glory? No, it's not. And here's why it's not wrong. Because God's greatest glory is our greatest joy. That the glory of God is what you were made for and is what will satisfy your soul. It's why you were created. You will feel more alive, more content, more satisfied when you are living for the glory of God than if you were living for anything else. God's glory is our greatest joy, our greatest contentment, our greatest satisfaction. Psalm 16, verse 11. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is what? Fullness of joy. His glory is our greatest joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Psalms 107. For he satisfies the longing soul, and the hungry soul he fills with good things. We can keep going. Psalms 90, satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love, that we may what? Rejoice and be glad all our days. Romans 5, through him we've also obtained access by faith into this grace which we stand and we what? We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. That God's glory is our greatest joy. In this I follow John Piper a lot. I went to John Piper's school, so I'm kind of a biased John Piper fan. Um, but he said what changed the game for him is when at a young age, he realized that God's glory and his joy were not competing paths. In fact, he realized that God's glory and his joy weren't even different paths. But in fact, the glory of God and his joy were in fact the very same path. That when you live your life for the glory of God, you will experience joy like you've never experienced it before. Why? Because it was how he made you. You were made to glorify him. And John Piper has given his life for this quote, that God is most glorified in me when I am most satisfied in him. You want to live a life that glorifies God? Be satisfied in him. In fact, some of you guys, we've talked about this a few times. You've heard of the Westminster Catechism. What's the chief end of man? Catechisms answer all of these big questions. And the Westminster Catechism answers the question, okay, what's the chief aim of humanity? What's the chief end of someone's life? Um, they say the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Um, John Piper, being very Piper, tweaked the quote with one word. Um, and he says, the chief end of man is to glorify God by enjoying him forever. If you want to glorify God, enjoy him enjoy him. It would be like some of you in here married, significant others. It would be like you're at your anniversary, right? And you go and you get flowers, 
grab a card, you do all those things, you plan a date night, and instead of walking through your front door on your anniversary, men, what do you do? You stop at your front door, you knock on the door, right? You wait for your significant other or your spouse to open the door, and you've got these flowers, and she opens the door, you show her the flowers, and then she says, why would you do all this? Why would you go through so much trouble? Um, Imagine you're in that moment and you say something to the effect of, Uh, because that's what husbands are supposed to do, right? (laughs) You know what I mean? Because there's a manual somewhere and it says, this is what good husbands do, so I'm doing it. Uh, Or you said, because I don't want you to be mad at me later, right? It was like guilt that motivated you to do all these things, right? We all intuitively know that that's not the right response. Guilt is not the right motivator, right? Duty is not glorifying, Guilt isn't glorifying. You know what is? Being satisfied. And that's the answer to that question. Why would you go to such an expense? You say something to the effect of, because there would mean nothing more to me than to spend the rest of this night with you, right? And if I could go back and choose you all over again, I would. I don't regret a single moment. I would do it all over again with you. I wanna spend the rest of this night with you, right? What glorifies that person? You being satisfied in them. And it's the same with God. You want to live a life that glorifies God to the people around you, to this community? Be so satisfied in him and they will see it. God will be most glorified in you when you are most satisfied in him. The chief end of man, you will glorify God by enjoying him forever. You see it? That he'll be most glorified in you when you're most satisfied in him. So you might be thinking, okay, what in the world does all of this have to do with missions, right? What in the world does worship and satisfaction and all of those things have to do with missions? Um, In his book, Let the Nations Be Glad, John Piper opens like the first sentence is the goal of missions is worship. That's the goal of missions. That's why we do missions. Missions exist because there are places in our world where worship does not. That's why we go on mission. Because we want to take this gospel message, as Romans 1 says, it's the power of God unto salvation for all who would believe. That we take this gospel message to the nations, to places where worship does not exist. Where these people can hear the good news about Jesus Christ. That they have in their sin been condemned. And they are deserving of his judgment and of his wrath. But God, right? Praise the Lord for big butts in the Bible, right? But God has done something decisive about our sin. He has sent his son to take on the punishment and the wrath of our sin and to live a life in our place that we could never live. And he is our substitute. He lived the life we could never live and then went to the cross willingly for the punishment for our sin. And we take this good news to the world and it creates worship all around the world. And there are people right now in our world who have never heard the name of Jesus Christ. They stand condemned. Romans 1 says that they are without excuse. That because creation itself just shows and points to the fact that there is a majestic creator God on this earth, that they are without excuse. And what is God's plan to reach them? It's his bride, it's the church. We're the plan to take this gospel to the nations. That's why missions exist, because there's places in our world where worship does not. Do you see that? And here's what I want you to see, that all throughout Scripture, especially in the Old Testament, we get this idea that 
All right, well, if you just weren't born Jewish in the Old Testament, then you were kind of out of luck, right? That the Old Testament was about the Jews and they had the relationship with God. And if you grew up in the Old Testament and you weren't Jewish, then, well, I guess you were just condemned already, right? But here's what I want you to see, that all throughout the Old Testament, God's heart has always been on the nations, always, always. And if you look in Genesis 1 and 2, right, creation happens, God creates the world in six days, he rests on the seventh, creates man and woman, Genesis 2, everything's great. Genesis 3, the fall happens. Adam and Eve disobey the Lord, they disobey his commands, sin enters the world. But in Genesis 3:15, if you want the thread, we say this often, the thread of the entire Old Testament is Genesis 3:15. It's the, entire, it's the thread that runs through the Old Testament. The first gospel, that there would be a descendant of the woman, the seed of the woman, that the enemy would have offspring and the woman would have offspring and the offspring of the woman, the seed of the woman, would crush the head of the enemy and the enemy would strike his heel. What's he talking about there? Striking his heel would be the cross, but the seed of the woman crushing the head of the serpent would be the resurrection and the final return and victory of Christ. That there's a promise all the way at the beginning that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. And if you want to know what is the Old Testament doing, why are these random genealogies in Genesis 4 and in other places in Genesis? Why does Matthew open up with the genealogy? What are they doing? They're tracing the seed of the woman, showing us that Jesus was the promised Messiah who would crush the head of the serpent. Luke chapter 3 starts with Jesus and goes all the way back up to Adam and Eve. Matthew 1 starts with Abraham and goes all the way down to Jesus. It's not just there for boring reading. What are the authors doing? They're tracing the seed of the woman. And that's the thread that runs all the way through. But all throughout this thread, why, is Israel, why does Israel exist? Why? Because God is protecting this seed. How do you protect this seed? You turn them into a nation, right? So they can defend themselves and they can govern themselves and they can survive, and thrive and eat and live and all of those things. So he turns them into a nation and then he protects them and defends them. Why? Because he made a promise in Genesis 3 that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. And as history unfolds throughout the Bible, we see that this promise wasn't just for Israel, that it was a promise for all people. Luke 2, the angel shows up and says, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for what? For all people. For unto you is born this day a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And all throughout the covenants even, we see that God's heart was for the entire world. And How was he going to do it? He was going to preserve the seed of the woman through the nation of Israel. Let me just do a flyover of some of the covenants in the Old Testament. Look at this in Genesis 11. Um, this is where the nations are formed, right? After Genesis 3, Brokenness enters the world. Genesis 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, right? You've got four, Cain kills Abel. Things aren't, you know, first family in the Bible and one of the brothers kills the other one, right? We're not off to a great start. Genesis 5, wickedness is just increasing and God even says he regrets making humanity. And you've got the flood that happens, God exercising his judgment over the earth, but we see judgment and mercy in that God decides to save humanity. Why does he save humanity? And look at who he saves, a descendant of the woman. Because if God wiped out humanity, then God would be a liar. And God never turns his back on one of his promises to his people. God promised in Genesis 3 that the seed of the woman would destroy the enemy 
So God exercises his judgment. We see judgment in the flood and mercy and grace. That God would preserve the seed. And from the seed would come Jesus Christ. But the flood happens. We see the repercussions of the flood, the promise of the flood, uh, the covenant promise of the rainbow, all of those things. And you get to Genesis 11 and what happens? Even after God wipes out the earth, starts over with one family again, wickedness, just increasing and increasing, increasing. Genesis 11, here we are, humanity again, right? We sing this all the time, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. We've wandered again. And what happens? They start to create, humanity starts to create this tower to get to the heavens. The scripture says to make a name for themselves. Here goes humanity again, trying to make a name for ourselves, trying to be like God. The same sin in Genesis three, right? The serpent comes and says, no, 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 you don't need to eat. God doesn't want you to eat this because you'll be like him. Here we are again, the pride of man. We can be like God. So what does God do in Genesis 11? Look at verse seven. It says, come, let us go down there and confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of the, all the earth and left off and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth and from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of the earth. So you see the nations are born in Genesis 11. You've got one family, one group of people that's multiplying. Here they are trying to make a name for themselves. What does God do? Scatters them across the earth and confuses their languages. And this is where the nations come from. And immediately... We see that in God's sovereign plan, as he creates the nations, the very next chapter, he's redeeming the nations. His heart is set on redeeming and restoring what he has done. Um, it wasn't a mistake. It was a part of God's sovereign plan to save and redeem the nations. God doesn't make mistakes. That even as he's disciplining and punishing humanity, he has a redemptive purpose involved. Look at Genesis 12. God's covenant with Abraham. The Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make you into this nation of Israel because I'm protecting this seed, but I'm blessing you so that you'll be a blessing. And this is the gospel. If you are in Christ, here's the, the same truth applies. You have been blessed so that you will be a blessing. There is no such thing in scripture as a, as a private Christian, as someone who keeps their Christianity private. You know, I raised my hand, I made a decision, and I just go on with my life. Doesn't change how I act, doesn't change how I interact. I just keep doing my own thing. You don't see that in the scripture, that you're blessed to be a blessing to others, to take this gospel message to the rest of the world. But it was from the very beginning, God's plan. I'm gonna bless you, so you'll be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you, I will curse. In you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. That was to Abraham. Now look at what he says to Isaac, Abraham's son. I will multiply your offspring as the stars of the heaven, and I will give to your offspring all these lands, and in your offspring, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Same thing to Jacob, Genesis 28. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth. You shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. All throughout the covenants, 
that God's making with Israel, his heart and his eyes are on the nations. I'm blessing you so that you can be a blessing to others. Same thing with Moses. Moses writes in Deuteronomy. We're just going through kind of the the famous figures of the Old Testament. Moses writes in Deuteronomy 4, See, I have taught you statutes and rules as the Lord my God commanded me that you should do them in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. Keep them and do them, for that will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples, who, when they hear of all these statutes, will say, Surely this great nation is wise and understanding. David and Goliath, the same thing. Solomon, the same thing. But you see, all throughout the Old Testament, all throughout the Old Testament, God's heart was on the nations. And what happens? You see God showing himself as the one true God. This polytheistic society, God's everywhere, all throughout the Old Testament. What do you do? What do you see? You see the God of Israel establishing himself as the one true God, and all of the other false gods can do nothing for humanity. You see this with Elijah and the prophets of Baal, right? You pray to your gods, I'll pray to my God, and we'll see which God rains down fire on this altar. You see this in the fire as we read, as David read for us this morning, leading worship. And what happens after Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego survive the fiery furnace? You see King Nebuchadnezzar say, blessed be the one true God of Israel, right? You see God establishing himself as the one true God over all of Israel, You see God welcoming the foreigners as he's doing this, that this wasn't exclusive to Israel. You see this in Joshua chapter five with Rahab. I believe it's chapter five. You see Rahab. Covenant's made in chapter two. I think it's chapter six. They save her actually. What happens? Rahab is not a Jew. She was not a Jewish person. She hears about the goodness of the God of Israel. She repents of her sin She seeks refuge in him, and what happens? She's welcomed into the family, right? All throughout the Old Testament, yes, God was preserving this seed through the nation of Israel, but all throughout the Old Testament, he's welcoming the foreigner. He's welcoming the Gentile, the non-Jew. He's welcoming the nations. Let me show you. I'm gonna skip down, Spencer, to to Leviticus 19. It says this, "You you shall treat the stranger who sojourns with you as the native among you. This was God's heart. Treat the stranger, the non-Jew, if they seek refuge with you, if they seek refuge with the God of Israel, treat them as a native. And you shall love him as yourself, for you are strangers in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. You see all throughout Israel, all throughout the Old Testament, as people seek refuge in the one true God of Israel, what does God say? Welcome them. Welcome them. This is God's law, Leviticus 24. You shall have the same rule for the sojourner and for the native, for I am the Lord your God. Exodus 12. If a stranger shall sojourn with you and would keep the Passover to the Lord, let all his males be circumcised, that he may come near and keep it. He shall be as a native of the land, but no uncircumcised person shall eat of it. There shall be one law for the native and for the stranger who sojourns among you. Right? If people, the, gen- the nations, the Gentiles, if they want to seek refuge in the one true God, let them obey the rules and the laws of God. Of God. Let them come in, but love them. Treat them as one of you. Let them obey my law and they will be one of you. All throughout the Old Testament, God is welcoming those that were not Jewish, the Gentiles. His heart was always on the nations. 
He would bless the nation so that they would be a blessing. Do you see it? It's really important that you see that. But then, what happens in the New Testament, right? Same truth applies. Jesus shows up on the scene, the promised seed of the woman, good news of great joy for all people, right? Luke 19, the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost, not the Jews, right? Everyone. I have not come to call the righteous, but I've come to call sinners, that if you are poor in spirit, if you're broken and needy and know that you need a Savior, Jesus came for you. It's the only requirement. doesn't matter where you're from, what your background is, what your ethnicity is, that this good news was for everybody, that this seed was being preserved to save the entire world. This was God's plan, the nations. Titus chapter two says this, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, everybody. That was the plan. It was always everybody. God's heart was always on the nations. And in fact, in Galatians 3, Paul says that the fact that Gentiles would believe was actually a fulfillment of his promise to Abraham. He says this, let me show you, Genesis 3, or Galatians 3, verse 7, he says this, know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham, right? If you're in the faith, if you're a believer, you're a son of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles, the non-Jews, by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. That Paul is interpreting the promise to Abraham and saying that, hey, when, it, when God said, through you all the nations will be blessed, what's he talking about? That Gentiles, that non-Jews would believe in Jesus and they would be children of Abraham. Paul is saying, this is coming true. And then he'll say a few verses later in verse 13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by what? Becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hanged on a tree so that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Now, here's what's crazy. If you want to know, are we in the end times? Is this the end? Here's what's interesting. Jesus says this in Matthew 24. He says, in this gospel of the kingdom, you can't get any more clear than this, will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. How do we know when the end will come? We don't know the exact day or the time. Jesus says not even he knows, that only the Father knows the day or the time, that it will be like a thief in the night, but he is giving us signs. He has given us signs. And it's that the gospel will be proclaimed to all ethnos, all peoples, not every literal nation, not every country on earth, but all people groups. In the Old Testament, the word ethnos or nations, it's a Greek word, but the translation of ethnos for the Hebrew word, um, all that means, these nations were different groups of people with specific cultures, almost like ethnicities, but not exactly. But you see in the Old Testament, in Canaan, you've got the Amorites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, like all the ites, right? All of those were different nations. They were different people groups. And what Jesus is saying here is that the gospel will go to every single people group, and then the end will come. This is a sign 
that God has promised that it will go, not that it might go, not that we hope it goes. And there's a comfort in this, that God has guaranteed that the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ will go to all ethnos, all nations, all people groups, and then the end will come. It's going to happen. It's a guarantee. And what's God's plan for that to happen? God's plan is you and me. That we're the plan. That we would be blessed by God for salvation, and then we would be blessed to be a blessing to the people around us. There is, you don't see in scripture someone go from death to life and then just nothing else changes. Cool, great, I'll just keep this to myself. <laughs> like you don't see that. Every person in scripture that's blessed by God, that's saved, is blessed to be a blessing. John 4, the woman at the well, what happens? She is in shame, she's hiding, she's drawing water at noon because she's ashamed of her past and what she's done and the relationships and all those things. What happens? Jesus goes to Samaria to meet her. The first person that he reveals that he is the Messiah to is to her. And what happens after she meets Jesus? This new identity from death to life brings a new activity. And the woman who was ashamed, was hiding, was guilty, goes running through the middle of town saying, come and see this man who's told me all that I've ever done, right? We're blessed to be a blessing. You see this in Peter's story. In Luke 5, when Jesus calls Peter, I love this story. Peter's a fisherman. He's got his buddies. They're fishing. They've been fishing all day. They're literally cleaning their nets, and Jesus just steps into his boat. Doesn't even know him. Gets in his boat and says, hey, take me out. So Peter does. Like, I don't know what authority you have to have to look at someone. You have to be the son of God for sure to step in someone's boat and like, hey, bro, take me out. And Peter takes him out so that Jesus can look off kind of like how I am right now at the crowds and start teaching them. And Jesus teaches and Luke tells us that Jesus wraps up and then he looks at Peter and he says, hey, throw your nets into the water. And Peter being Peter starts arguing with the Messiah and says, we've been fishing all night, unsuccessful. Like we're literally cleaning our nets. And he says, throw your, throw your net into the water. And what does Peter do? throws his nets into the water, and then they catch so many fish that he has to call over another boat so that they can haul the fish into the water. And what's Peter's response? He bows at the knees of, knees of Jesus, and he says, depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. Right? Instantly calls him Lord. And Jesus says, you're gonna fish for men. I've just blessed you so that you can be a blessing. From the very moment that Peter is called, what's the mindset? What's the heart? What's the focus? To be a blessing to others, to take this gospel to the nations, to all peoples. When Peter is called, you see the very same thing. And we talk about this often. You were blessed to be a blessing. Second Corinthians 5. We love verse 17, don't we? We love it. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. And we always stop there. God's made us a new creation. But here's what's so important about the next few verses. Look at verse 18. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself, but then what? 
gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That this wasn't meant to stay with you. We were blessed to be a blessing. He's reconciled us to himself, but then he's given us a ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling who? The world, all nations, all peoples to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors on this earth for Christ. God making his appeal to the world through who? Through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. If you wanna know your life's message, that's it. I implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to him and I've got the message, right? Here's the thing. If you are not burdened by the fact that there are people today that are dying and spending forever away from our Lord Jesus Christ, but you have the message and you have the gospel, you won't do missions. You won't live on mission. If you're burdened by the fact that people are perishing, but you don't know the message, you also won't do missions. But if you are burdened by the fact that people are perishing every day, not just in other countries, but in this very community, if we're burdened by the fact that people are perishing and we know the gospel message that will save them, when that truth and that burden, that love collide, that's when we live on mission. But if your chief end, if your chief aim of your life is your own personal happiness, you won't live on mission because you won't sacrifice anything. But if your chief end of your life, the chief aim of your life is the glory of God, then you'll live on mission. But it's when we're burdened by the fact that people are dying and don't know Christ and God's plan to reconcile them to himself is that he makes his appeal through you and I, believers, his bride. It will fuel us to take this message, I appeal to you, be reconciled to God, to the people around us, to those in our communities, to those abroad, to those that are perishing every day without knowing Christ. Let me show you a few more. First Peter 2, starting in verse 9. We love this verse as well. You're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. Yeah, keep telling me more, God, right? I like this. Um, a people for his own possession. Here's why. So that, or that. Here's why we're a chosen race, royal priesthood, holy nation. That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Why has he chosen us? Why has he redeemed us? Why has he saved us? So that we would proclaim his excellencies everywhere we go. That's why. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Do you see it? God's heart has always been for the nations. It has always been for all people groups. Every tribe, every tongue, every nation, and he has chosen you, he has blessed you, he has saved you, he has redeemed you so that you can be a part of this great mission to live your life for the glory of God and the good news of the gospel going to everybody that you encounter. You are his ambassadors. We are his ambassadors. He's given us the ministry of reconciliation. God is making his appeal to a lost world through you and I. 
That's the plan. Jesus' prayer in John 17, before he leaves the earth, he's praying to God, and it's all about the glory of God. I would encourage you to read John 17 on your own time. We don't have time for it today. But Jesus says this in verse 18. He says, as you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. As you've sent me, in the same way that you've sent me into the world, I'm sending them into the world. How did the Father send Jesus into the world? To proclaim the kingdom of God through the person and work of Jesus Christ. How does Jesus send us into the world? To proclaim the kingdom of God through the person and finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. It's why you've been saved. It's why you've been sent. It's why you've been called. It's why you've been chosen. Not only that God would bless you, that you would be a blessing to the world around you. So, what does that look like? Here's a passage. If you want to bookmark this, if you want to turn to it, I would encourage you to. This will be um, pretty shocking to you as we read it. Um, Romans 15. This is a mind-boggling passage. And this will be a comfort to a lot of us. And some of us, this will be the passage that sends you on mission to literally pack up and move and go somewhere abroad. Romans 15. I would encourage you to go to it. This is what Paul says, starting in verse 22. This is the reason why I have so often been hindered from coming to you. But now, since I no longer have any room for work in these regions, and since I have longed for many years to come to you, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain and to be helped on my journey there by you. Once I have enjoyed your company for a while, at present, however, I am going to, to Jerusalem to bring aid to the saints. For Macedonia and Achaia, or Achaia have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem. For they were pleased to do it. Indeed, they owe it to them. For the Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessings. They ought also to be of service to them in material blessings. When, therefore, I've completed this and have delivered to them... What has been collected, I will leave for Spain by way of you. I know that when I come to you, I will come to the fullness of the blessing in Christ. Look at verse 23. I no longer have any room for work in these regions. All right? What in the world? Like, we're supposed to read that and expect Paul to say, like, there's no work for me here. But the natural response is, but Paul, like, you're talking about from Jerusalem to, like, what is now Albania. Like, there's... Thousands and thousands and thousands of people that don't know Christ. Tens of thousands of people. What do you mean? How, how, how can you in good conscience say that there's no work for you, Paul, in this region? I mean, it's right there. I'm leaving. Here's why. Since I no longer have any room for work in these regions. How in the world is he able to say that? Because Paul is someone who goes. Why was Paul able to say there's no work for me here, even though there's unbelievers there? Because Timothy was there. And Paul raised up Timothy. Paul preached the gospel all throughout these areas. He, as people came to know the gospel, this is all throughout the book of Acts. We talked about this last week in Philippi. Acts 16, you can read the story of the Philippian church. It's crazy. It's this incredible, beautiful soul of a woman named Lydia. And then you've got this former demon-possessed woman and a jailer, and they all come and they form the first church in Philippi. 
like the most unlikely group of people. But Paul would go to these regions, he would preach the gospel, he would train up elders, and then he would go. And why can Paul in good conscience with thousands of people that don't know Christ say there's no work for me here? Because Paul was someone who goes. Timothy was someone who stays. And in Ephesians, Paul writes to Timothy and says, do the work of an evangelist here. They're in the kingdom of God. There are people who, are, who go and there are people who send. But there's nobody who does nothing. That you are either one who God has called to go, you're either a Paul or you're a Timothy. Hey, I'm going to stay and live for the faithfulness and the maturity of this Christian community here, but I'm going to send. And don't miss all of the sending here. Notice Paul doesn't condemn them. Like, what are y'all doing? Why aren't you going? Because Paul knows that not everyone goes and some send. But nobody is apathetic or passive when it comes to the gospel going to the nations. If God has blessed you, you are to be a blessing. And we've all been given the great commission to make disciples as we go, right? But specifically, some are called to go abroad and to travel and to move and to pick up and to go and preach the gospel and start churches in places that have never heard the gospel. And some are called to send. But none are called to do neither. And Paul doesn't condemn them for not going. He doesn't rebuke them and say, everybody's supposed to go. Paul knows that his role that God has given him is to go. He bounces around all throughout the book of Acts, preaches the gospel, raises up leaders in the church, writes to them and encouraging them and correcting them. But then he's gone. Paul was someone who goes and Timothy was someone who he raised up to send. Timothy pastors, he shepherds, he does the work of an evangelist in this community. And that's what we're doing here. That we would work and labor, equip the saints for the work of the ministry. We would preach the word of God to you so that you would be mature. And God would, Lord willing, he will call some of you to go. And he will call the rest of us to send. And this is how God's method is to reach the entire world. Through his bride, through his church. And the church is not the hope of the world. The gospel is the hope of the world but the means by which God sends the gospel to the world is through the church. That there would be people who would go and there would be churches who stay and do the work of the evangelists in our community, but we would send. It's one or, one or the other. But we all have work to do when it comes to the gospel going to the nations. Don't miss the sending here. Look at verse 24. I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain and to be helped on my journey there by you. Once I have joined your company for a while, at present, however, I'm going to Jerusalem uh, to bring aid to the saints. For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints in Jerusalem. They were pleased to do it. Indeed, they owe it to them. For if the Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessings, they also to be of service to them in material blessings. That we either go or we are people who send. This is how the gospel is going to go to the world. And like I said before, there's not gonna be a call or a plea to guilt you into going, but Lord willing, I'm gonna trust the Holy Spirit and pray that he might call some of you to consider going. You don't have to commit today. We're not trying to kick you out. I'm not trying to guilt you or pressure you. I'm gonna present the text and let the Holy Spirit do what he does. And for some of you, that might mean, you know what? We just need to start thinking about what God's doing over the nations. I can go through my week and not think about another single country except for my little kingdom here in Carville, Tennessee. 
or Germantown or wherever you live. Some of you, there's an app called Operation World. Some of you maybe just need to download that app. It's free. And every day, there's a different country that they highlight, and it shows you the spiritual needs and the prayer needs of different people in different countries. Some of you might just need to get that app and say, you know what, God, help me to think about the nations of what you're doing there. Some of you may need to say, you know what, we're feeling a tug. In fact, Jose and Tasha came and spoke to our young adults ministry, and there were two couples that said, you know what, we don't know what that's going to look like, but here in the next 10 years, we want to be somewhere, sent, sent by High Point to somewhere overseas to preach the gospel to people that have never heard it. Some of you might say, hey, you know what, when Jose and Tasha are back in town, we're going to reach out to them and see if we can grab coffee with them and just talk. Who knows? Not trying to play the Holy Spirit. All of us have a role to play in the gospel going to the world. We are making our appeal to the world through Christ. We're living on mission here, and we're sending people abroad. And for all of us, if you're not involved in some way, maybe the step for you this morning is you need to say, you know what, I'm going to support Jose and Tasha, or I'm going to get involved in some ministry that's doing work in the nations to take the gospel to the people who have never heard. Someone. We all have a step to take. But here's what we know as I wrap up. That the glory of God will shine forever. And that the gospel will go to all the nations. Revelation paints this picture that every tribe and every tongue and every nation are worshiping. Every one of them. Revelation 5 says this, Revelation 7 says this, that we will all one day bow before the King of kings and the Lord of lords in every single ethnos, not even country, every single people group will be represented at the feet of Jesus. If your idea of heaven is as a bunch of Americans, you've got it way wrong. Every single Ponta ta ethnos, all the peoples will bow at his feet and worship him and sing and declare that salvation belongs to the Lord. I cannot wait for that moment. And I want to leverage my life until then to live for that name and to do what I can to equip and to teach and to send and possibly go one day. Like I haven't written myself off from this, but I wanna live for this great cause, for that great name. I'll close as I read Romans 10. This is what it says, um, starting, this will be kind of our benediction um, as we respond in worship. This is Romans 10, nine through 15. And we love verse nine. It says this, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all. No distinction between Jews and non-Jews. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Verse 14. How then, though, will they call on him who they not believed? And how are they to believe in him whom they never heard? And that how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news.
Let's pray together. Lord, we're grateful for your word. God, I pray that none of us would be closed off to the fact that you might be calling us to go. But God, I pray for all of us that we would know and be open to the fact that you have given the great commission to every single one of us. That whether we go abroad or whether we stay and send, we make disciples as we go. That there are people in this community who need us to make your appeal to them. That they should be reconciled to God. So God, that's why we as a church exist. We wanna make disciples. Some will go, some will say, some will stay and proclaim the gospel to this community. But Lord, we trust you. You would call some, you would send some. But God, we as a church, that we would be a sending church. That we would raise up people in this body as we make disciples who will go to other parts of the Southeast, who will go to other parts of the US, and also who will go to other parts of the world to make your appeal to the world through Christ, through us, that people be reconciled to God. Father, we respond in the only way that we know how. God, in your wisdom and sovereignty, you've chosen to use us and bring us along into your great and eternal plan of redemption to save someone, save people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. God, we don't deserve to be a part of that plan. But by your love and your grace, you use us. And our only response is to lift our hands in worship. God, thank you for the salvation, the the blessing that you've given to us. And God, forgive us when we haven't used that to be a blessing to others. Help us to do that as we go. In Jesus' name.